Why didn't you do that before? Why do you have a clay recording? Get rid of it. She would have never known. Hello, everyone. My name is Jason Ramirez, and welcome to Season 4, Episode 4 of the Hit List Podcast, a podcast where me and a guest cross off films from our watch list and discuss them. Today on the show, I'm joined once again by publicist and Twitch affiliate Tabitha, a.k.a. Sailor Tabby Cat. Welcome, Tabitha. Thank you so much for coming back on the show, and I'm excited to discuss some films with you again. Hi, it's good to be back. Thank you for asking me to be back on the show. So before we get started, I have two questions for you. Mm-hmm. Have your viewing habits changed much since the last time you were on the show? No. <laughs> they have not. I expected as much. <laughs> I was actually... Um, guesting on my friend Bindo Gek's stream last night and we started talking about my viewing habits because I was telling her I was telling her and our friend Sarah what I was doing today on mm-hmm. podcast with you and then we started talking about how um like they were naming movies and I was like no I haven't seen it <laughs> <laughs> and then her chat started naming movies and I was like no um if it's animated I've seen it probably but if it's not animated chances are it's not and then of course they all started naming animated movies and I was like is this my joker origin <laughs> <laughs> yeah I will say like from our discussions on like on Twitch and Twitter I've found out that there are some movies you've seen that I haven't seen yet for one I still haven't seen Tangled yet what I, I- <laughs> Listen, there's so much I've seen since then that Tangled is not one of them. Also, uh, The Shape of Water, even though I had the Blu-ray about it like years ago, I still haven't seen it. I still haven't seen it. I'm clutching my pearls right now. (laughs) (laughs) And my second question for you is, um, would you rather lose all of your money or all of your pictures? All of my money. No, wait, no, wait. I answered that really emphatically and way too quickly. (laughs) The reverse. All of my pictures. (laughs) So you'd rather lose all your pictures? Yes, because I can retake them again, but it is so freaking hard to make money, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we kind of we both understand how capitalism works. We just got to exploit a certain group of people. I The way I will do it is if I exploit rich people. It's mm-hmm. like uh, the parasite. Mm-hmm. Oh, thing. Sp- parasite. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of a segue, neither of us watched that. <laughs> Speaking of Shape of Water, we're going to talk about a film direct, also directed by Guillermo del Toro. And another Which film... I did not know until I watched it. You didn't know? Oh, wow. No. Awesome. Okay. So, they also have the same theme, which is snow and blood, and also revenge, in a bit. Mm-hmm. The films we will be discuss- discussing today are Crimson Peak and Lady Snowblood. Crimson Peak is a 2015 gothic romance film directed by Guillermo del Toro and written by del Toro and Matthew Robbins. The story, set in Edwardian-era England, follows an aspiring author who travels to a remote gothic mansion in the English hills with her new husband and his sister. There, she must decipher the mystery behind the ghostly visions that haunts her new home. The film stars Mia Wasikowska, Tom Hiddleston, Jessica Chastain, Charlie Hunnam, and Jim Beaver. This film was on Tabitha's list. Why was this movie on your list, Tabitha? Because I just, amongst the other movies I've never seen. I just never saw it. As soon as you saw Lady Snowblood, my mind immediately went to, before we get there, I didn't know what Lady Snowblood was about. So I was like, okay, I need to think of something that's like at at least tangentially related. So there's a bit of a theme going on. Mm -hmm. And Crimson Peak, I was like, well, there's there's a lot of snow and blood in that one. (laughs) (laughs) Watch that one. (laughs) 
And then I watched both and I was like, uh, <laughs> they're, they're mean. <laughs> I wasn't wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's a, a crazy a crazy combo, essentially. I didn't even think of a Crimson Peak when I said Lady Snowblood. I was just thinking like Japanese um, samurai movies that I've been watching a lot lately. And you said Crimson Peak and I'm like, oh, okay, I saw that years ago. Um, not when it came out, but when it was released on DVD, I, re- I got it from the library and I saw it and I loved it. Never saw it mm-hmm. again because I guess I just didn't want to see it again. Cause I, it, it made me sad, you know, as much as mm-hmm. I loved like the set design, it made me sad, but I was very happy to revisit it. So let me ask you, uh, initial thoughts. Okay. So I now understand why you got mad at Batty for spoiling that. Yeah. <laughs> Can you explain what happened? Batty is... Yes. So I was streaming with my other good friend, Lil Batty, and I was talking to her about the podcast and she was super excited that I was going to watch Crimson Peak because I'd never seen it before and she loves that movie. And she immediately opens with, oh my gosh, the incest. And I was like, (laughs) hold hard pause. (laughs) Hard pause. Rewind the the footage for a second. The who? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and Jason was in the chat and all of a sudden I just see him in all caps go SPOILER <laughs> I think when I said spoiler I reinforced the idea that it was a spoiler if I never said anything I don't think you would have known that did that ruin your experience or did you have that in mind it did not but I saw the cues earlier than I would have uh. in the movie because there are cues between Hiddleston and Jessica Chastain mm-hmm. if like you you're already like um like dialed into like that that plot point the plot point that i now realize everyone goes oh yeah i love crimson peak but there's a part that kind of made me go (laughs) (laughs) and i didn't know what that was and then i watched crimson peak and i was like nope they're right everyone was right amazing movie but there's a point that makes you go <laughs> and if you already know what's coming, like the, the the I guess God, I hate using this word. The I'm gonna say dynamic. I was gonna say chemistry. The dynamic uh, between mm-hmm. the Lucille and Thomas, it makes more sense. Yeah, definitely. Watching it again, I definitely saw them a lot sooner. And because when I first saw, it, I'm like, they're a little too close, aren't they? I guess because they grew mm-hmm. up together and they had like, like they're a- orphans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And you know they're trying to rebuild their wealth that they didn't have that they, they lost their father lost a while ago. But then it's like, oh, oh God, yeah. Because mm-hmm. like at, at even I was like, okay, Lucille definitely has a thing for Thomas because she got super pissed that they were that her and Edith spent the night outside of the manor. Mm-hmm. But then like you get to that scene and it's like, oh no, it's like a it's it's like a reciprocated thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, i want to ask you were you scared of some moments by some of the elements in the film there was one part that made me jump because i'm i'm pretty good with like ghost movies and stuff like that and i will say i don't think this was a ghost movie i think this was a movie that had ghosts in it exactly because i i did a little bit of research myself and i know that people didn't like it wasn't super well received not critically um by the public i guess because I guess people thought it was supposed to be a Guillermo del Toro horror movie, and mm-hmm. that's not what it was. It was a movie that used uh, ghosts as a vehicle to tell their story. But there was one scene. I think it's the scene that kind of like gets everybody, or at least like the second in a scene that gets everybody when she's going around the manor after having woken up from um, one of her uh, tea-induced fits. 
Cause that, that when that was happening, I was like, I, I before I even like knew Lucille didn't like Edith. I was like, no, the people don't offer tea that much. Yeah. <laughs> no. No. There's something in there, and I was right. Um, but no, the scene where she doesn't see the ghost, but the ghost is on the other side of the door, and it makes oh. that like really scared. Yeah, that. Yeah. Oh my god, that scared me. That actually made me jump. It, it's kind of difficult to make me jump, but uh, Del Toro does such a good job with monster design. Because the, the monsters weren't, like, they weren't your, like, traditional-looking ghosts, you know? Even if it was, like, an air quotes horror movie. Like, he he was so, is decisive the word I'm looking for? He, like, purposeful with mm-hmm. their design and, like, the coloring of them. Yeah, I even saw the special features for this film because I borrowed the Blu-ray from my library. And when he spoke to, like, the artist to make the ghosts red... The artists mm-hmm. who he worked with had never heard of doing that before. Like, Red Ghost, really? But, mm-hmm. like you said, he's purposeful of everything in this film. To the point where even the color is purposeful. Mm-hmm. And if you don't mind, I'm going to talk a little bit about the color. Yep. He says in the com- commentary and in other interviews, the only points you see red in the film are the blood on Lucille, the clay, and the ghost. That's the only mm-hmm. only t- moments you see red. And if you see any other points of red, that's probably by accident, like... Something like seven to set design where they couldn't control the red, but it's very limited. You, you don't see red besides like those four things: the clay, the ghost, Lucille, and blood. So yeah, uh, I will say for me that I still I'm a bit of a scaredy cat, so I avoided horror movies for like most of my life up until I was like 21 mm-hmm. or so, and I still got scared from this movie, even though I expected, I knew what to expect because I've seen it before. I knew the ghost creeped me out because I never see them so graphic like that before. It was like mm-hmm. a combination of zombies and ghosts. But the one thing that scared me the most was like the black ghost from the beginning when it's her yeah, mother. Yeah, and even even that was purposeful because she died from black cholera. Mm-hmm. And something else I learned. There are two things I learned that I found that was interesting. Del Toro says whenever he makes a movie, so he'll get something from his childhood or like some stuff from his life that he puts into the film. For this one, he says it's personal to him because when his mother's grandmother died... When she was a young little girl, she remembered mm-hmm. going to bed and she saw, her, uh, she felt her grandmother's ghost get on her bed and hug her and she could smell her perfume. Oh, wow. And so that's like very reminiscent of his mother's experience with ghosts. And I thought that is creepy as hell. The other part I with the black that. ghost, <laughs> the lower part of the face is Jessica Chastain's face. The black Wait, ghost. What? Yes. That's what I thought was like, whoa. Because it's the second time she sees the ghost when she's in, she's in a young lady. She's she's like in a present, quote unquote, present day. Mm-hmm. When the ghost like haunts her a second time and she says, beware of Crimson Peak. And when she reaches throughout the door, she like bases through the door and see, it holds her. That's Jessica mm-hmm. Chastain's face, like the lower half. I was like, wow. What Did he say the decision for that or was it just, oh. Chastain has a good ghost job. <laughs> I don't think he really mentioned why he did it. Uh, I think it might be because, like, for him, the ghost in the film can go through time. Because in the past, mm-hmm. her mother told her to beware Crimson Peak, to not go there. I mean, she says it again when she's an adult. Mm-hmm. But I guess because, like, related within time. But I honestly don't know. I couldn't tell you. I also noticed, as far as color goes, at the very beginning, like, when she's still in Buffalo, like, everything's warm, warm tones, um, like, it's kind of sunny, everything's lit by candlelight, and as soon as they shift over to 
jolly old England, everything's like cold and isolated. And the only warm tones come from Edith and like mm-hmm. the clothes that she wears and like her long blonde hair. Definitely. That's something that was also purposeful. He also says like Buffalo at that time was like the most electrified city and they had the most electricity. That's why in that little board meeting when Thomas is pitching to the to the rich guys, it's mm-hmm. both electric lights and gas lamps at the same time because they're transitioning to electricity. And mm-hmm. he said like gold is gold is like the progress. It's like the uh, America that was full of hope and going towards progress and the fact that like Edith's father is nouveau rich you know he's a newly rich man and mm-hmm. he just has his own style like his home is straight lines angular everyone has like straight angles it's gold and it's a huge contrast to when she goes to Allerdale Hall which is blue and curvy it's literally sinking into the ground mm-hmm. yeah that's something I really liked and I also want to talk about the set design because this film looked beautiful not just because like cinematography the costumes whatever but they took so much time into the set design. Oh, I loved Allerdale Hall. Because, like, the... Just the fact that the the roof was... It was supposed to be, like, decaying. Like, I think it was supposed to mirror, like, the downfall of, like, the family. And then, like, the relationship between Lucille and Thomas was also, like, falling apart. Like, I think their home was reflecting on that. And their um, constant string of uh, murders. Um, I... What really got me was the fact that their ceiling is open in their Mm -hmm. grand hall and it's constantly snowing like i thought that was gorgeous definitely like a gaping wound Mm. yeah i like the way you said that gaping wound i didn't think of it like that i I was just thinking like sometimes like we have suspension of disbelief whenever we watch movies right Mm -hmm. but there's some moments of like okay but why did they do this every time i see it i know it's purposeful like why do you have that hole there but i keep thinking like can't you just get like a tarp up there just to like temporarily <laughs> temporarily do that? But then if they didn't do that, the snow wouldn't have like softened the blow when Edith fell from like the third floor. Yeah. Well, like I'm also guilty of like being super hard criticism for movies <laughs> except for like Guillermo del Toro because I just literally like Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> so anytime I see him do something like creative and artsy, I'm like, well, I mean, it's fine because it's it's Guillermo. It's mm-hmm. the Pan's Labyrinth guy. Come on. <laughs> but I see like someone else make like an artistic decision. I'm like, okay, but you could have put the tarp over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's something that's like, ugh. I know some people who go <laughs> overboard with that. I think I'm not. Did I tell you about the the mummy story about the swords? And the no, mummy? I didn't. Okay, no. I I told this up a few times, but I'll say it again because I love talking shit about this guy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I was at like this pregame thing for like um because it's like it's like a dance convention. We were at a hotel and we were mm-hmm. in the ho- hotel room. We're all wa- getting ready just pregaming before the the dance party downstairs, mm-hmm. and. Where I put on the mummy, I got pizza for everyone, and we're all just having a good time watching watching the mummy. Mm-hmm. And it was towards like the end of the movie, so it wasn't like I turned it on from the beginning. It was like on cable, and so mm-hmm. it's towards the end of the movie when Brendan Fraser's character is fighting off the other mummies while he's trying to mm-hmm. save Evie from mm-hmm. being replaced by the ghost of like the former lover of the mummy, and mm-hmm. this one dude who I wasn't particular about before said something mm-hmm. that solidified my disdain for him he said mm-hmm. <laughs> he said that sword looks like something that's more like a roman sword not an egyptian sword and <laughs> i i've never been more self-aware of my stink guy than i was at that moment and i, I just like i was like having a good time we're all, we're all friends here you know all enjoying ourselves and then he said that and i'm like 
Like, just like the meanest stink I could ever have. Because I thought two things right here. First, the Romans and the Egyptians weren't unfamiliar to each other. They're right in the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. They've interacted. They've had a couple wars together. They traded with each other. What? Didn't, didn't Cleopatra marry him? There we go. See? You see? You see? <laughs> That's what I had in mind, too. That it, you, you understand. You get it. You get it. That's one. <laughs> two, it's a fucking movie about a mummy. <laughs> trying to resurrect his girlfriend. So what makes you... What makes you care about the sword he's fighting the mummies with? So, yeah. <laughs> there, uh, I even, like, said to him later, like, not on the same day, but, like, you're the worst person to watch a movie with. He says, I know. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I'm not going to interact with this dude ever again. He he takes himself way too seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, aside, uh, a tangent of a tangent very, very quickly. I'm pretty okay. sure Edwardian time is still the time when... British people were eating mummies because they thought it made them healthier. For those of you that don't know, there's a global shortage on mummies because British people kept grave robbing them and eating them and using them to like dye things. So mummy brown is a color. It's like an illegal color now because they would grave rob mummies and like ground them into dust and eat them (laughs) and use them to dye things. We're on Zoom right now, so I'm looking at Jason's face. <laughs> See, this is why you're my favorite person on Twitter, because you always say these, like, disturbing things <laughs> that I never knew about. Like, I never considered... How would I know this? How do you know this? I don't know why. I'm on the internet how... a lot. <laughs> oh, like, where? <laughs> where, though? I don't worry know... about it. <laughs> I believe you. I, I, I'll, I'll trust your judgment. <laughs> I'm on Wikipedia a lot, and I've I've seen some weird stuff on Wikipedia. It's like, huh, that's that's weird, but okay. It might be Victorian, but I, I think it's I think it's between Victorian and Edwardian. But yeah, there's a global shortage on mummies. I've never I hear I hear those like words together. There's a global shortage on mummies. <laughs> that's because there should be way more, <laughs> but they all got eaten. <sighs> that is. Shocking, to say the least. <laughs> I don't want to say it's cursed knowledge. I guess it's shocking. You know, it's like those. Mm-hmm. It's like the knowledge you really like read in a book of like the most shocking facts you never knew about in like elementary school, like mm-hmm. in the book fair. That's what I think. That's like yep. one of those facts you might hear about. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, back to Crimson Peak. <laughs> mm-hmm. What other moments stood out to you? I noticed that Thomas and Edith were kind of similar i think that's kind of what guided him into falling for her because i think his i'm using air quotes around the word love now love (laughs) between tom and lucille was largely on lucille's part because she was the older one she's very controlling it was i mean they were both young when they started like doing that but um i think as they yeah yeah but like as they grew up like you can tell that like tom is kind of pathetic in this movie (laughs) lucille is very very like strong-willed and stuff like that so i think she kind of as they got older like groomed him into like staying in that kind of relationship and i think edith would have been um like his actual first experience with like actual like proper affection that isn't toxic Mm -hmm. because she had just gotten turned down by her editor for her 
story that wasn't a ghost story. Like the also her the the story that she wrote was a metaphor for the movie. It was a story with ghosts in it, used as a metaphor. And then Thomas had just got turned down by her father, which actually was kind of funny to me when he's when the father was talking to Edith. He was like, "Oh, it's not that I hated a." his invention. I don't like him. <laughs> he was honest. <laughs> that, that was that, that made me chuckle. He was like, oh no, his invention seemed like pretty okay. I don't like him. <laughs> his vibes are off. <laughs> <laughs> he had a vibe check and it was off. <laughs> his, he, he failed the vibe check. <laughs> That's what his pitch was. <laughs> But no, they had similarities in that. They they both got they both got rejected from a from a thing that they wanted. Yeah, definitely. And Guillermo del Toro he even says like he he kind of like relates to both of them because whenever he like pitch stories to like investors, they won't like it because like they're like oh it's a ghost story like no it's a story with ghosts in it and they just don't mm-hmm. understand what he means by that. And mm-hmm. he's had that happen a few times. So that in that way he relates to them. Not in the other ways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was, I was, I was about to say, but be careful. How I saw your face. I saw your face. I had to like, <laughs> I had to quickly explain, like, not in that way, and this way, because Thomas he has ambitions, but he's still being controlled by his sister Lucille. Yeah, and it's it's like the metaphor you see. Like he wants to leave. He wants to have his own future, but he's still being like chained to the ground by like the crimes he's committed. And mm-hmm. Lucille, like, friending him that he'll be hanged if he does leave, you know? And yeah. eventually, also, he doesn't care anything. Also, yeah, circling back to, he's not a sympathetic character. He's still no. <laughs> a, a, um, a serial killer. Yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> he's still a murderer. He he lured women to their deaths for their money. Mm-hmm. Do you have any other final thoughts on the film before we get to uh, talk about the production? Yeah, I guess just the color. Color is what really struck me in this movie. That that was one of the reasons I wanted to watch it because like the stills I saw from it, the color grading was just so pretty. I'm really a sucker for like high saturation mm-hmm. and films don't tend to do that a lot. Um, yeah. So that was one of the reasons I did want to. I'm glad I had an excuse to sit down and watch it. So thank you for that. Um, but yeah, I recommend. I, I do. I really, really liked it. Just, you know, prepare yourself because there's a point that's going to make you go, Ugh. <laughs> Actually, I guess I have one little nitpick. Why keep the evidence? Because you know the, the the key that she finds on the key. Okay, hold on. Let me let me have my one nitpick because I okay. I, I can be not fun too. Let's go. Let's um, go. It's it's not all gushing. Um, don't keep the evidence of your crimes. <laughs> Just get rid of them. There's a whole scene where they're burning the papers of like her, of like where they're burning the papers when she finds them, when Edith finds them, and then Lucille's like, yeah, she probably burned these. So you see her burning them. Yeah. Why didn't you do that before? Why do you have a clay recording? Get rid of it. She would have never known. Oh man, that's also the fact that they kept the murder weapon and they kept the bodies in the clay. You know, and he Wait, didn't so kill the dog the either. Hole in the ceiling. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um there are a few nitpicks, but I think I can get past a few of those. Except for the hole in, mm-hmm. in the in the ceiling. That's like the one I I still get a little P 
peeved about. Like, that's going to do much more damage than if you just fix it right now. <laughs> well, they're, they're, I, think, I think that's part of the, the decay metaphor, though. There's mm. a lot of things that they could have done to, that could have fixed it, and they chose not to. They chose right. to progress. Also, they killed that many rich people, and y'all are still broke. Right? Y'all still broke, really. I think he was just <laughs> investing so much time and money into that machine of his. Mm-hmm. But still, it's like... If you're still broke after all that, maybe you should, like, take a few lessons. Take a few classes. You just brought something up that I just suddenly think of. Yeah, his machine never worked until Edith came along. Mm -hmm. And he never, like, discovered, like, actual affection until Edith came along. Oh. Oh. Oh, sneaky Del Toro. (laughs) I like that. So, since this is a Del Toro movie... I want to talk about Dottore as a director. So, mm-hmm. a little bit about him. In 1997, he directed Miramax's Mimic. And the film includes several examples of his most characteristic hallmarks, such as insects, clockwork, monsters, dark places, and unborn things. And mm-hmm. he combined all this in that movie, Mimic. But I will say that was his least favorite movie because he got verbal abuse from Harvey Weinstein. And Oh. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, no, not him. <laughs> Another filmmaker friend of his, I forgot which one specifically, almost fought him at the Academy Awards because on the, the tourist behalf. Yeah, I'm not sure if it was Oh, James wait, Cameron. oh, okay, I thought you... I thought you meant almost fought Del Toro because he hated no, no. the movie so much. No, I like the other one. Good, yeah. fight that man. <laughs> I'm not sure if it was um, James Cameron or Alfonso Cuaron, but it was like another filmmaker mm-hmm. who almost fought him on Del Toro's behalf because of like his treatment towards them. And to this day, the Torah says that that was like one of his worst experiences ever. But yeah, that's a little bit about him. And, and according to Alfonso Cuaron, um, he says, with Guillermo, the shots are almost mathematical. Everything is planned. And this translates to his work in Pan's Labyrinth and Crimson Peak. So I want to talk about the art direction. So we both said we love like the set design and everything. All of this was done by hand. It was built because he didn't want to like, he didn't want to do like based on a building and like find a building mm-hmm. and shoot it. He built, they, they built that from scratch. And that was like in a studio. And just seeing the that. design that went into it is just amazing. My man and his practical effects. Yeah. And I can't really describe the the features that went into this. But basically they did like 3D modeling first. And then they will make like mm-hmm. a, a physical like miniature model of it. And this was like so detailed. It looked like one of those like D&D sets. But like very detailed. Yeah. yeah it was like amazing to look at. And they'll just like see like what works and what didn't work and mm-hmm. yeah that was like oh they really cared about this movie and he said like during like the during his time there he said that's one of the best uh one of his favorite set designs ever and but this was like back in 2015 2014 when he was creating mm-hmm. the film i think i think since then he's also said said that about the shape of water mm-hmm. yeah and production designer tom sanders who worked with del toro on this movie he said the house is the embodiment of the family and the generations that have lived within it the whole house was built and designed in layers I felt I could bring the history of the family into each layer and show how each generation changed what the previous one had done. And he even mm-hmm. said, like, this mansion isn't really a, a mansion. It was considered a McMansion of its time. Oh, that's interesting. And yeah, like, the shots in the show, in the show, geez, in the movie, um, you can you can see, like, layered architecture in them. Like, when they have hallway shots, when yeah. Edith, like, is starting to get sick and, like, she's in the wheelchair... Um, like the layers of like, I don't know what they're called, but the iron like spikes that are like in the ceiling, are you, like, like those pointy, are pointy like, down? yeah, the pointy, the pointy downy ones. Yeah. Um, 
those are those are layered too like in the shot and i thought it was just a cool shot but that's that's cool that there was like a of course there was like a thought behind it it's a del toro film <laughs> are you talking about the the hallway or like the fact that like in her room she had like like little things hanging down i'm talking about the hallway but there were they they were in her room as well yeah that that hallway was also a particular scene because you want that's where that's what you say was the ghost generator because that's where she saw all the ghosts most of them mm-hmm. actually and there's a deleted scene, but that's also where Tom sees the ghosts, but he he ignores them because mm-hmm. he he knows they're ghosts, but he does his best to ignore them throughout the whole film. And if, mm-hmm. if you, you kind of notice that he avoids that place as much as possible, that specific scene with like the spikes coming down like in the hallway, they built mm-hmm. more like of those things in that shot in that hallway to make it look like it was out of focus and it was like a little bit longer than it was. But yeah, that's that's kind of how they made it. Hmm. I like that. Yeah. More spikes. More spikes. <laughs> and also interesting because it's the in the shape it's in the same shape as her mother's gravestone. If you remember in the beginning. Yeah, I didn't even notice that. Crazy stuff you learn about in the commentary. <laughs> it's also the keyhole, but I see more of the connection between like her mother's gravestone and that. I want to talk about a little bit more about the color in Crimson Peak. The color of the ghosts has specific meaning to each of them. So the red ghosts are the ones who were murdered and are trapped in the house. The black ghosts are the are they called the ghosts who choose to stay. So you see that mm-hmm. with like Edith's mother because also because she because she died of black black cholera, and you also see that with Lucille when she dies she's the she's a black ghost and she stays at mm-hmm. the house, and white is used to like both contrast the blood that's gonna happen in this scene. Such mm-hmm. as like the bathroom scene when Edith's father is murdered, and in that last limbo fog scene where Lucio dies, and she also sees Thomas, and he's a he's a white ghost, and that represents mm-hmm. he's accepted his death and he's leaving. Well, he finally gets to leave. Yeah, he finally gets to leave. <laughs> he finally gets to leave. He's right by the machine too. He's right next to the mm-hmm. machine when he dies. Uh, well, well, his ghost, his ghost dies. As far as like the other colors in this movie, gold, like I said, is the color of progress. The scenes in America are color graded in gold, and Edith, like you said, she wears bright gold to like contrast the whole scene in Allerdale Hall. She's what Del Toro says is a dollop of sunshine in that old world. Aww. Blue is used to represent the past or clinging to the past. Allerdale Hall is like colored like in a blue blue hue, and Lucille wear, wears a dress the same color as the walls of the house. And so does Thomas. He has the same color and fabric because I guess what they're doing is like they're wearing their parents' clothes and also taking fabric from the house to make their own clothes. So mm-hmm. th- that's just like a lot of the color in that film. I'm, I'm all about it. I love it so much. <laughs> I'm glad I picked up on like the actual reasons because I was just like, huh. Okay, another side tangent. Twilight didn't ruin everything for me because you know how... <laughs> I'm sorry, I learned very young that color grading in film was a thing because they were so heavy-handed with their films. Like, the first one has, like, blue tint, and then, like, the second one has a different color tint, I forget. And then, like, the third one has a that bright yellow tint that they had over everything. So I learned mm-hmm. very young, oh, they do color stuff in movies. So I always think about that when I watch, like, a movie that also has a very distinct color direction. Like, I'll pick up on it now. And I was like, oh, it's gold right now. And then we got to Crimson Peak, and I was like, hmm, it's blue. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Um, I might have to watch Twilight soon. I know I've seen, like, the last one, like, the last battle scene. 
And that's what's prevented mm-hmm. me from watching the whole movie series. How do I say this being fair? If if you were much younger, you probably wouldn't dislike it as much as if you watched it now. Because it's mm-hmm. not made for us, you know. It's, it it yeah. was made for kids. And, um, like, weird moms who were super obsessed with Twilight. Oh, um, that was weird. Remember that? Remember yes. that? Oh, man. But, like, the first one was, I mean, it's, it's, uh, you, you got to expect the corn. So if you expect the corn, it's like, ah, okay. And then the second and third one, it's kind of like, hmm, sure. <laughs> and then the fourth one, it's like, oh, Carlisle's head looks real bad decapitated. <laughs> Why does it look like that? <laughs> this movie had so much money. Oh, man. I want to see it because, like, I have a lot of friends um, who saw it when they were younger and now they're older. And, like, um, they kind of, like, relate so many, like, movies to, like, Twilight. Or they'll talk about how, like, they love the actors since they were on Twilight. Like, my friend, my best friend, she she says she's followed Robert Pattinson since Harry Potter and she loved him in Twilight. And now that he's in the Batman, mm-hmm. she's, like, kind of a little, little peeved that men are starting to appreciate him more because they didn't appreciate mm-hmm. him back in Twilight. And I, I was one of those guys, too. But, like, I was, like... Okay, I'll give him a chance because I I know about his independent film projects that he's done over the years. And Mm -hmm. I've seen his interviews and his stories and interviews and how he just lies out of his ass about everything. And like, yo, this man is like like a different type of energy. Like, he does not care about this at all. He doesn't care. Him and... and, Shoot, Daniel Radcliffe have have the same goblin energy, yes. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, their successful careers when they were younger help um, fund their later on projects. To be fair, they're also just better actors because they're older now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I want to talk about a little bit about the pre-production about this um, because he wrote this movie back in 2007, right after like Pan's Labyrinth came out. He had been working on it for a while, but he kept postponing the project because he worked on Hellboy 2. And mm-hmm. he, he also did work on the Hobbit films, which is just an unfortunate story because, like, it would have been better if they actually kept him on. What did he do? I think he worked on the first one. Uh-huh. And after that, I think they fired him or they found someone else to do his, continue his work. Well, how do you How do you shelve? Guillermo del Toro. They've done that so many times. It's not... It's, I'm not shocked. His track record is... Even his least critically received movie is still viewed as a fucking excellent movie. Yeah. Like, his, his track record. How do you... <gasps> they did that with him with Pacific Rim, where he was attached to the first movie. <gasps> oh, you're movie. right. That's why the second one isn't good. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's not surprising to me. But that's what happened. And he want He... His friend would suggest him to produce the film for, like, another director. But he couldn't find one he deemed suitable for the project. And I'm glad he didn't because I don't think anyone else could have done it the way he did it. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch and Emma Stone were originally cast in this film. They, bu- they both what? dropped out. Of- yes, right? Right? <laughs> it's crazy. I could see Benedict Cumberbatch doing this. I was going to say, I could see Benedict, but I can't see Emma. No, it's... She's too, um... I don't want to say this in a mean way, but she's too famous in a way mm-hmm. like I, I wouldn't be able to see beyond Emma, you know? Mm-hmm. I felt the same about Jessica a little bit because I laughed at some parts where she was like a little too creepy. <laughs> like when mm-hmm. she got like the moth, like the, from the cocoon or whatever. Yeah. She was like so, she was like too creepy. I laughed, you know, kind of like Wednesday Adams, you know? I, I liked Jessica Chastain as Lucille. <laughs> <laughs> There was one, remember the part when she's, like, talking about the butterflies and the black moths? Yes. 
Yes. And she's basically saying, like, you're a butterfly and I'm a black moth. And what? And then it's like, what do, what do black moths eat? And she goes, butterflies. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. And normal's just a setting on a washing machine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, even that scene where you see the butterflies dying, you see the mm-hmm. bright yellow butterfly being eaten by the black ants. And it's like kind of mm-hmm. mirrors her own um, Lucille's philosophy that those strong will eat the weak, like mm-hmm. a, a very very crazy, not a very good philosophy for life. But that's how she's she not a very be- good person. She's not. She's a terrible, <laughs> terrible human being. So it, of course she would have like a terrible take on life, uh, like most people on Twitter. Uh- ah! <laughs> <laughs> Got him. <laughs> I'm not going to name names because then they'll show up in the SEO. I'm not going to name names because there's too darn many of them. And now a word from our sponsors. Now back to the show. All right. So Lady Snowblood is a 1973 Japanese jidegeki film directed by Toshia Fujita and starring Meiko Kaji. Based on the manga series of the same name by Kazuo Koike and Kazuo Kamimura, the film recounts the tale of Yuki, a woman who seeks vengeance upon three of the people who raped her mother and killed her father and brother. This film was on Jason's list, so Jason, why was this on your list? Alright, so there are two reasons why this movie's on my list. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go with the first one, which is obvious, because it served as the inspiration for Kill Bill. And you don't say what what made you say that <laughs> <laughs> yeah i've been doing this thing where like i want to like see the films that inspire the filmmakers i like you know mm-hmm. and surprisingly they're older <laughs> mm. older films the second reason is because if you've been following along with the podcast like for the past couple seasons you know that I'm working on a samurai short film that I want to do in the near future. And oh, I actually didn't know that. Kudos. Yeah, I'm not, not a lot of people know about it because um, I like to keep my plans close to my chest until it's closer to being done. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's why I don't post like my job hunt progress because it's depressing. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, I wanted to see like how older filmmakers did it because I know that they ran with limited budgets. And I saw some other films that I really liked, such as um, The Sword of Doom, which I loved that movie. I saw that for season three of this podcast. I absolutely mm-hmm. loved that film. And I had like the collection of the Lone Wolf and Cub movies, um, also on Blu-ray. And mm-hmm. coincidentally, from the same guy, the same manga source author, author of this film as well. So that's why I wanted to watch mm-hmm. Lady Snowblood. And uh, what did you think about it? Uh, it's... I think I told you before we recorded, I wasn't too much of a fan with this one. I can appreciate... Yeah. <laughs> I can appreciate some moments in this film. Like, there's this one scene where she kills one guy in front of the ocean, right? I really mm-hmm. like that imagery. And there are so moments that are just like, shocking is like oh that that happened okay that's fine like mm-hmm. just like whenever like the blood squirts out like a fountain every time she kills a guy that it's like mm-hmm. funny oh it's always funny to me but overall i just wasn't too much of a fan of this one so can i ask you why was it because it didn't age particularly well or 
Was it how visceral the motivation for her revenge was? Like how kind of, I mean, not even kind of, how like graphic that was? So I like the story behind it. Like I, I understand mm-hmm. like it's a revenge movie um, through and through. She's getting revenge for mm-hmm. her mother. The very reason for her life is for revenge. I like that aspect yes. of it. For me, it's just like the filmmaking style didn't age well. And mm-hmm. I, I'm more forgiving for, like, other movies, but there's some moments in this film where, like, I'm like, they should have just left it on the cutting floor. Like, there's this one scene where, like, there's, like, a, it's shaking. The camera's shaking. They're trying to establish, like, a shot in nature. And it's just so noticeable. It's just, like, I'm thinking, like, why didn't they just cut it out? And there are other moments that happened in that film throughout that I wasn't too much of a fan of. And it happened enough times that I was like, I'm not too much a fan of this. But I do like the story behind it. I think it's, like... A very dark story, like, oh, that's mm-hmm. fucked up, but okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, that's pretty much what I thought of it. What did you think of it? I actually really liked it. <laughs> <laughs> I I was more forgiving because it is older, and I'm... Okay, I, I love Kill Bill, so, like, seeing the predecessor for Kill Bill was very fun for me, because I didn't expect that going in. I had no <laughs> idea what Lady Slowblood was going in. I picked Crimson Peak because the title of this one for yours was <laughs> Lady Snowblood. <laughs> so I was like, okay, snow and blood. So I had no idea what to expect. And then I watched it, and I was like, oh, this this would, this is what, ins- this is actually, not even inspired. I, th- I would consider Kill Bill a remake of Lady Snowblood, like the, yeah. the Western remake. I wouldn't even say it was an inspiration. I, I would say it was like a remake slash homage. Um, and I don't mean that in like a negative way because I love Kill Bill. I was more forgiving when I watched it because I like really zany, like gratuitous, violent, uh, older Japanese movies like mm-hmm. Ricky O. Like the, the Ricky O manga that was adapted into like a movie. It was ba- It was in the same vein. It was like super gratuitously violent and like... Like, out of this world, like, Yuki is doing, like, um, front flips from, like, a standing position in her kimono and her sandals while still holding her umbrella. And I'm like, I can I can dig this. I like that um, the theme song for, I believe the theme song for this movie is sung mm-hmm. by the actress Mako. Yeah. It's also used in Kill Bill. So if they're, if anyone was thinking they're, yeah, that's, that's the connection with that as well. I think Mako was a great act if anything i think maybe she carried the movie like everyone else acting was maybe more mid and hers was very very good because she just has that look Mm. of like partially like a cold ruthless killer but like there's still some humanity left in her because she feels bad for i'm i'm more i'm worse with the names in this movie but um the person who she gets revenge on the one that she kills on the ocean the gambler Mm. Yeah. Like, she she feels bad for his daughter. Like, because his daughter didn't do anything. He did something. So she, like, gives the daughter her information in case, air quotes, something happens to her father, which I was like, is she... Because then when I finished the movie, that got me thinking, did she do that on purpose to have the daughter be her Lady Snowblood? Because towards the end of the movie, when she kills, like, the reporter as well, like, the other person that she, like, didn't have any hard feelings against, but she went through him to get to his dad, you could argue that, like, at the end of it, she lost any kind of nobility that she had to carry out her vengeance mission because she hurt two innocent people. So after that, her comeuppance was getting killed by the gambler's daughter in the snow. Because I'm pretending the second one doesn't exist. That one, that one didn't happen. <laughs> Lady Snowblood 2 doesn't exist. 
<laughs> I didn't think of that. I was remembering back because it's been a while since I've seen Kill Bill, but one scene that always stuck out to me was when the first kill she made was like from that mother, and her daughter comes in right when she kills her, and she says, "When you're older, you're allowed to come kill me," or she says something along those vein, that vein. And I was thinking like that's probably like the same thing that like was right here, but I didn't think that's mm-hmm. what she meant by saying like um, telling her that information. I didn't think of that. I did see like the some like similarities to it though. So yeah, I like that. That's a very good connection there. I also think that like the um, the killing of the reporter, it might have been like um, like he's suffering the karmatic extension of his father's sin mm. with his death. Yeah, something like that. Something, something karma. <laughs> I'm gonna be honest with you. I was tired when I saw this movie. It's like towards like that last <laughs> half, like that last um, third of that movie. I was like mm-hmm. zoning in and out, but like I do remember small bits and bits and bits of it. I do remember that the first person she killed was like a decoy, and they went for mm-hmm. the mirror, and he was running away. How did the guy the reporter die again? Was was he? Did he stab himself to stab him? Yeah, no, no. She, he. Um. The, so the reporter was the son of the last person she was trying right. to kill, um. And he was trying to hold his father back because he pulled out a gun in a sword fight because he was <laughs> mildly intelligent. Um. <laughs> so he was trying to shoot Yuki, and his son was holding him back. So he kept shooting his son to get him out of the way and he's like still holding him back and he's like yuki her you have to kill him and to her the only way she could have gotten like a clean kill on him is to go through the sun so she stabs them both through okay okay i remember that part now yeah that's a pyric victory is that what it's called pyric victory i think so okay i I know words um sometimes (laughs) yeah that sucks that really sucks and Yeah, that sucks. <laughs> Journalist dying, man. I, I, that always, like, gets something in me. He was a muckraker. Like, the best of the mm-hmm. best, I guess. I don't know. Mm-hmm. He was calling shit out. <laughs> like, people mm-hmm. on Twitter. So, do you want to talk about the training of this movie? Like, the training sequence in that movie? Because that was, like, a pretty bizarre yeah. training sequence. Yeah. All right. Uh, I want to talk about the barrel. So, basically, in the film, um, she's born in a prison, and then her mother dies... And since the child didn't commit any crime, they can't keep the child in the prison. So her mother entrusted one of her friends, I guess, to train her in the ways of the assassin to go kill, get revenge killings, right? And he trains her since she was like a little kid. And he, one of the trainings is to get in a barrel and roll it, go roll down the hill. And once you hit the bottom, you can't get out of the barrel. And if you get, if you're jumped out of the barrel by accident, You'll be punished, right? And I, I just want to know, when did she use this training in her in her killings? When did she use that? Because I thought it was going to be uh, essential. Like, I thought it was going to be like a Chekhov's, con- Chekhov's gun. Like, I know literally your terms, all right? Uh, for later mm-hmm. in the film, where, like, she had to disguise herself in a barrel so that she could get the jump on some people. But no, that never happened. So, what was this about? That did endurance. <laughs> <laughs> endurance training uh if i'm super honest they were probably limited with their props and set pieces and we're like what can we do (laughs) we can stick her in a barrel and roll her down (laughs) speaking of like limited budget 
They spent most of the budget on Lady Snowblood, like, costume and makeup and design and whatever, and spent little on everything else. I mean, it shows. It it looks great. <laughs> she looks great. <laughs> no one else does. <laughs> no, the, the reporter's hair is, like, a very, like, oh, that's a bad wig. But to be fair, this was also, like, the 70s. Wait, no, when was this made? Was this the 70s? Yeah, 70s. Yeah, this was the 70s, you know? <laughs> yeah, but they also had a very, very small budget. They only had 20,000 feet of film to shoot in. Oh. That's not a lot. <laughs> they had to shoot Mm-mm. exactly as much as they needed to shoot. And I'm like, yo, that's... Ugh. So they really had to make sure they th- shot the film what they needed to do. But yeah, that training sequence of the marrow. I'm only thinking like my dad used to tell me like they used to have like a like a tire where he lived mm-hmm. when he was a little kid and they like rolled down the hill inside the tire. Your dad was working on his endurance so he could avenge his family. <laughs> That's the Western version. I guess he's still working on it because our family's still alive. <laughs> but yeah, what else stuck out to you? The oh my goodness, so. She was, how do I say this? She was cock-blocked from satisfaction from, I want to say, all of her revenge. Like, all yeah. of her revenge killings. Because the one of them, her mom killed. That's how the mother ended up in prison. The one that, mm-hmm. like, um, like took her to continue assaulting her in his travels. Like, she ends up murdering him. That's how she gets in prison. Um, she's not actually the daughter of the husband that got murdered. She's the daughter of one of the guards because the yeah. mom very specifically would seduce guards to have a baby so the baby could be raised to murder the other three. So, like, this kid really didn't have... really didn't have a snowball's chance in... A Yuki's chance in hell, (laughs) if you will. (laughs) Yuki means snow in Japanese. Um, She didn't get a satisfactory murder for any of them. The one on the ocean, she had to contend with the idea that she was taking a father away from... Uh, the daughter that she ended up meeting. The second one, the woman hung herself before she could satisfactory kill her. And the third one, at least at first, she thought that he died in a shipwreck. He just knew that Yuki was coming after him, so he faked his own death. But even when she got to kill him, she had to kill, like, the only other person I think she could ever consider a friend in order to enact her revenge. So... Like, she didn't get a satisfactory revenge at any point in this movie. And that was the whole reason she was raised. Because it, during the gambling one, she, like, begged their, um, when he was caught cheating, she, like, begged, like, the, the, the gambling people, don't kill him. But she did that so she could kill him. And even mm-hmm. when she got to, like, she's she wasn't happy about it. Like, she couldn't be happy about any of them. Do you think that says something about revenge in general? I think one of the key differences between Kill Bill and Lady Snowblood was Lady Snowblood did not glorify the revenge because none of it was satisfactory. And Kill Bill is basically like a two-parter, four-hour revenge fantasy. So I guess I said something about the filmmaker, like the adaptation of the Or at least, I'm not, I haven't read the manga, so I can't say it's the much. Same. Is it Okay. So it's the same. Yeah, it's like a one-to-one ratio. Okay. So we can say, like, it's from the author's perspective, like, revenge. Or, like, what do you think is about revenge? And I learned uh, a few years ago that, like, revenge is not satisfactory either. But in a smaller, mm-hmm. smaller scale that doesn't even matter. Uh, it's mm-hmm. kind of petty. I'm going to say it. Um, like, I, I think I told you I went to UMD, right? Mm-hmm. And one time I was parked in an area... That I wasn't supposed to be parked in, but I didn't think it mattered mm-hmm. because literally no one else was parked there. It was during the summer. I was just trying to get ahead and studying for like the pre- uh, for upcoming semester, and then I got an eighty dollar ticket for illegally parking there, and mm-hmm. I was still making minimum wage. So that is not an insignificant number of 
of money. Yeah. So I was like enraged, like because at my previous college, it only it was only like fifty dollars, right? But even if you told them mm-hmm. like your story, they're like more forgiving of it. University of Maryland does not give a fuck about you. Mm-hmm. They only want your money, and at any means possible, they're going to get your money from you. So mm-hmm. I tried to I tried to like appeal to like the system, and they said no. And I tried to like appeal again, and I didn't hear from them for like three months. And then three months happened. Like I think I got it in like in August, and then I got the note back in November or something that said no. We don't care what you just said. We don't give a a hoots, a hoot or hollering, yeehaw, whatever. <laughs> we don't care about you. Pay us our money soon or else we'll charge more. Ooh. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Okay, you know what? Screw this. I'm going to pay in dimes and nickels and quarters and pennies, right? Yes! I went to my bank and I said, is there any way I can get $85? I remember it was 85 It was like 80 It was 85 which is even worse. Like 85 really? I asked um, the bank teller, is it possible I could get $85 in pennies? She's like, are you paying a ticket? I'm like, how did you know? <laughs> it's apparently not an uncommon thing to do. <laughs> no, it's not. It's a malicious compliance thing. Exactly. And she said, okay, so unfortunately we don't have that in pennies, but we do have that in quarters and mm-hmm. we could get that to you. I'm like, okay, I got $80 in, in, in quarters in like in like the rolls, right? And she said, I said, uh, can I get like five ones then? Do you want them in dimes instead? I'm like, you're on the same page, you and I. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I got five um, rows of dimes. Totally like, so that all of it together was $85, right? I went mm-hmm. to the office that I was supposed to pay in. And it's always like specific hours. So I went as early as possible to like give mm-hmm. them as much um, time to get as much time to like pay it off because they had to accept it because it's money. I get mm-hmm. there. I get to the teller. I, was, I had the plan of unrolling each quarter and counting them just to make sure I have every all $85 of it Mm -hmm. and I get to the teller and the teller she's a student she had a textbook she had a textbook she was getting ready for she was like doing homework and she's like hey how Mm -hmm. can I help you I could tell she was new because she was like smiling so she like actually liked her job at first because she was getting money for it Mm -hmm. I was like oh She's not it's never the, the man, man. No, she's not the person who took it to me. She's not the appeal process. She's not the people I called on the phone to ask, like, how can I get this off of my, because I don't have that type of, I, it's, it's a lot of money for me, right? Mm-hmm. She's not any of them. She's just working there. That's her part-time job. She's a student just like me. I'm like, why do they do this? Because they know. Because they know. <laughs> So I said, oh, can I pay a ticket? And she's like, okay, yeah. No, no. And, uh, I just I just get the quarter because they're still in the rolls. And I said, okay, uh-huh. uh, 10, 20, 30, 40, 80, 85. And she's like shocked like, um, do you want a receipt? I'm like, yes, I want a receipt. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, are you going to put that in the cash register? I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I was just shocked that you paid in quarters and dimes. And I'm like, you're not. Yeah, it wasn't supposed to be you. <laughs> it wasn't supposed to be you. <laughs> So revenge, I couldn't get my revenge. Uh, yeah, it sucks. It's like whenever people are like mad at like the corporation and then take it out on the on the cashier. Yeah, but I guess my humanity was still intact because I, I you've worked retail. I know you've worked retail. I've worked retail as yes, well. Yes, I have. Uh, <laughs> we're not the person you should be mad at. 
because we're we're probably yeah. trying to help you, but sometimes we can't because we don't mm-hmm. know how or we can't. Yeah, we don't have the power to do that. So yeah, I was I guess you would say cock blocked by my revenge to get a satisfactory yep. revenge. You, you got cock blocked. You got cock blocked <laughs> from your satisfaction. <laughs> here's a here's a little tip though, if in case you're ever in a situation similar to like that. Um, if you ever have an HOA fine, don't feel bad about paying them in quarters. I would go even further and pay them in pennies. <laughs> don't 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 feel bad about hassling the HOA. <laughs> No, no, never feel bad about that. Never, never, never. Folks, never feel bad about bullying the HOA because they bully you first. Like, what? why are you bullying me? I'm literally existing here, guys. Like, you know what? Pennies for you. <laughs> Pennies for you. Take it. <laughs> I think we pretty much said everything we can about the movie. Do you have any final thoughts on the movie, actually? Nothing that I haven't already said. I, I liked it more than you did because um, I, I was a little bit more. I, I was a little bit more forgiving about like the how it aged. I already knew it wasn't going to be a modern movie when I saw like the the movie poster. But it turning like me learning that it was Kill Bill's predecessor made me enjoy it more. I think because I went into it not knowing that. Yeah, and I think I'm more pretentious about the movies I watch. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I I can admit that I've become I've become more pretentious about the films I enjoy. I it's not like I don't watch movies that had lesser budget because I just saw this movie um, on Tubi, also a samurai film. It's called uh, Onochimbara mm-hmm. Bikini Samurai Squad because it's based on a video game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's a reason why I clicked on it because I like bikini and samurai. Let me look at that. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. a very silly movie, and because it's based on a video game, it takes itself way too seriously for a movie that call that's named Bikini Samurai Squad. Yeah, but I did acknowledge that the choreography and the music were top notch in this film. It was pretty good. So it's not like I don't watch lower budget movies, quote unquote low brow films. I just have higher expectations for them. It's funny that you say this is a lowbrow film because I found out that this isn't the Criterion Collection. It which is. Which is supposedly, yeah, which is supposedly like um, like a renowned, like more artsy collection. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm holding up my Criterion Collection Blu-ray of Lady Snowblood. So I bought this before even seeing the film. I'm still going to keep it because I like the art. Let me show you the poster. So in the poster, this is what it looks like inside. There's like a DVD. Now the, Blu- the Blu-ray oh, which cool. comes with both mm-hmm. films and special features. In it is also like a poster, which is a poster for Lady Snowblood 2. Ugh. Okay, but the art's very good. Yeah. And on the back is an essay by a film critic. That's long. It's Yeah, I had to read it online because I can't focus on the tiny font here. Because I can't see it. <laughs> And it's a, on the side, it just says, like, the the transfer of the negative into Blu-ray. So, yeah, that's, um, it's not like a, it's like low brow, like I mean this, but I kind of do, a little bit, in a sense. Mm-hmm. I just wasn't too much of a fan. And also because I've seen other samurai movies from that period yeah. that I like a lot more. Like, like I said, The Sword of Doom and Lone Wolf and Cub. And I haven't, so... I, I guess I have nothing to compare it to that would be considered better films, even for the time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's kind of why. But I guess we understand why we like slash don't like it. But, and also respect each other's opinion because, you know what? Just because someone doesn't like something you like, it doesn't mean that they're assholes. Yeah, and you see, when you apply it to movie opinions, that's totally fine. <laughs> All right. I want to talk about this, like, as the manga. So... This film was originated from a popular manga by Kazuo Koike and illustrated by Kazuo Kamimura. And 
Kawika is being known for his celebrated Lone Wolf and Cub series. He said he's created very, a lot of samurai characters, but not one of them were women. And so he wanted to change that for this movie. And the Japanese title, title is called Shura Yuki Hime, which is a pun on Snow White's Japanese name, Shira Yuki Hime, which is Princess Snow White. So the word Shura means to, comes to me, Asura, semi-divine beings, consumed in like the act of violence and the illusion of those that, that lives forever involving such a fate. And the title was translated as Lady Snowblood because Asura is associated with the term Shuraba, which is scene of a great battle or scene of carnage. So it's really just like a pun of like Snow White. I didn't even notice that. That's cool. It's awesome. Like they really like their puns, I guess. In the Criterion Collection, there are interviews with the screenwriter and with the original author of the manga. And... The author, Kazuo Kuike, he said the reason he believes that it did so well because of the story of, the origin story of Lady Snowblood. Because that's something that's like a very violent story that you can understand. Like revenge stories like pretty much do well for like any genre. And he wrote it the way he wanted to write it. He didn't write it to sell it. In a sense, like he wasn't a hack. He wrote it the way he wanted to write it. Which I can respect both, both ways of writing because... Mm-hmm. You need to make money to have yeah, a living. Yeah, I was like, yeah, put food on the table. <laughs> yeah. Like, people like um, James Patterson and R.L. Stein are... They're considered hacks because they write so many stories. They have, like, a certain system to do it. But they do it so well that they are able to make a living off of it. And R.L. Stein, I saw his masterclass on that masterclass website. He mm-hmm. says, people call me a heck. I am. <laughs> That's how I make my money. A rich one. <laughs> a successful one. And he even tells you how he does it. And um, I'm like, you know what? I used to be like one of those artsy guys. Like, it was like, oh, they sold out. Or they're hacks, you know? Mm-hmm. But then I got, I got older. And I'm like, oh, wait, I have bills to pay. So, like, you know what? How, how did they become a hack? <laughs> how did they? <laughs> you know, here's the thing. There's, there's, there's a definite amount of hack I can appreciate. There's, like, R.L. <laughs> Stein hack where, like, He's open about it, and I remember I liked his books when I was younger, so I also have the nostalgia filter on. But like, I wouldn't say his stories are bad for kids either. Like, no. they're they're. I remember being scared when I was younger from some of his stories. Still haunt me to this day. Actually, the one where like this wasn't even one of his scarier stories. Just the one where like the kid was like cursed with like every time he fell asleep, he either woke up in a different place or he woke up as a different thing, and what? then like a society found out about him, so they're. Their solution was to put him to sleep forever. That idea terrified me because I'm like, that's death. That's that's death for children. <laughs> that is horrifying. To this day, I still think about that. Like, what if I just, what if I like sleep and magic happens and like a society finds out and they'd like try to force me to sleep forever so I can never wake up again. I hate oh, that. Wow. But anyway, there's a difference between, I think, what R.L. Stein's got going on and what, um, fuck me, who directed the most recent Star Wars trilogy. Um, there were two guys. It was J.J. Abrams. The second and... one. The, the one the, the one where it started going downhill. The, the last one, Rise of Skywalker. Who directed Rise of Skywalker? That was J.J. Abrams. He did the first and second. That was J.J. Abrams? First and, he did the first and third of the, the sequel trilogy. He did the first and third? Okay. Yep. So, J.J. Abrams 
Fuck was him. a hack at least <laughs> at least for the third one because he openly admitted oh i didn't have a plan for the trilogy i just kind of went with it that is hack behavior oh, he was man. like i knew it would i knew it would do well because it's a star wars movie i didn't have a plan that is hack behavior so i want to say this because um any slander against jj abrams i fully appreciate i revel in that i I don't, want, I don't want to say I hate the man. I don't like his work at all. I don't think he deserves the success he's gotten. Because one, he's a nepotism mm-hmm. baby. Two, mm-hmm. his stuff sucks. I don't know why they kept making so much money. Right? Lost? He he was lost when he was making Lost. Wait, okay? he, was, he was lost, wasn't he? I forgot he, he was. was lost. Yes, because listen. Okay, oh, no. He was I, I, lost. This is something that I also talk about the podcast very much. Because I don't, I don't like his success. I don't like that he's... I'm like Newman from Seinfeld because like Newman didn't mm-hmm. like that Seinfeld was so successful. He thought uh, Seinfeld didn't deserve his success. That he's very critical mm-hmm. of his comedy. I'm like I'm like Newman before J.J. Abrams. So he has this method of writing called like the mystery box, right? And mm-hmm. he has he has a tech talk about this where I thought it was pretty cool, like as a writing exercise. Until I found out this is actually how he writes like the final product. I'm like. You idiot. So here's how it happens. He has, like, there's in the story, there's, like, a mystery box. You don't know what's in the box, but you try to do everything you can to get into the box, but you can't open it, whatever. But, like, the mystery box is kind of like the MacGuffin of the story, whatever. And there's, like, so many ways you try to get into the mystery box, but you can't get into it. And then once you open it, mm-hmm. you don't even know what's inside. So he did this when he wrote Lost, where there's so much mystery and intrigue with Lost. You don't know what's going on, and you want to know what's going on. But even J.J. Abrams didn't know what was going on in Lost. He was trying to find out along with the audience. And when I, I learned that. this, I was like, how do you have a job? Mm-hmm. Because no matter what you write, no matter what you write, no one's going to be satisfied because they'll come up, they'll like bring up stuff that you wrote in the past that had no relation to the ending whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And I'm like... Bro, what? And then when he did the same yeah. thing with Star Wars, with yeah. Star, I was like, somehow. maybe for like some art house bullshit movie, sure, yeah, because you can right? appreciate like the artsy, the the whatever. But like for a hugely commercial success that people are kind of like relying on you to 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 wrap up nicely because it means a lot to so many people. Here's another thing: I actually liked Rise of Skywalker not because it was a good movie. I acknowledge it was not a good movie because J.J. Abrams is a hack. (laughs) I liked it because I'm a Raylo stan, and it was two and a half hours of archive of our own fan fiction on the screen. (laughs) That is the reason I liked Rise of Skywalker, not because it was a good Star Wars movie, because I fit into a very specific niche that it applied to. (laughs) And I enjoyed it for what it was. (laughs) Yeah. That's uh, that's something. The thing that made me like sigh in in, in the movie theater when I saw it with my friend because I liked the last one. I actually liked the Last Jedi. I know it's a very um, polarizing I like film. Last Jedi. I actually like that one, and I think they mm-hmm. give it. I, I think they give it too much shit than they actually deserve. But where was I going with this? Oh yeah, the moment that made me sigh in the, in the movie theater was when um they said po- somehow po Palpatine somehow yes, Palpatine po returned because because fucking Oscar Isaac is also sighing when he said it and I was like I'm that's probably not even acting that was probably just his first reaction to the script <laughs> <laughs> I was like somehow you gotta be Palpatine me. has returned and it's like what do you mean somehow I didn't even mind that she was 
a descendant of Palpatine. I was like, that could have been really interesting if we had touched on this two movies ago yes, and worked right. their way up to it. So I this is like a very this is a very long tangent to Star Wars. I'm gonna leave it because I, I do want to talk about this a little bit. Mm-hmm. I um like the idea in the last Jedi that Ray came from nothing because I think a lot of people can relate to that. Uh, yeah. I also come from nothing. I don't want to say nothing, but like our, my family before coming to this country, there were farmers, like very, very poor farmers for like the longest time. Mm-hmm. And I was tired of hearing like all these people who made history are like some assholes who were rich before they made history, you know? Mm-hmm. I was very tired of hearing that. And to hear like that she was a very special um, special character and that she came from nothing. She actually was like a nobody before this. That, that struck a chord with me. And I really liked that. And mm-hmm. there was also, like, that last scene in Last Jedi where, like, that little boy who was working in the, the stables, he was able to force pull a broom to himself. I'm like, yo, what? Like, I was excited to see that. they never visit that again. They never they visit never that again. they never revisit it. They retcon that within the next movie because they got so many negative views by, like, the Star Wars stands. And they said, oh, wait, no, you're... You're one of the fam- you're from one of the families that has been fucking up the the universe for like the past few generations. I didn't mind that. I I really didn't. I I understand where like it's like oh I like that she came from nothing. I think the same thing could have been shown with Finn coming yeah. from. I I think that plot line could have still kept its um I guess purity is the word authenticity <laughs> in in the series from Finn. I think Finn should have ended up being able to become a Jedi to like Same. show like anyone can be in tune with the Force, and then they fucking scrapped that. That's where they were going in one, and then they scrapped <sighs> it, and then they were like, ah, oh, bye, Rose. No one liked you, Rose. When that's not true, it was just a very vocal subset of people. Whatever, we're not getting into that. That's a whole other discussion that I can talk a very, very long time about. But, like, I, I I, did like that she could have been a Palpatine because then it could have been like, oh, it's not your origin. It's, it's like what Mewtwo said, you know? <laughs> it's not where you come from. It's what, it's what you do, you know? But, again, if it wasn't only in the last trilogy movie, if they had touched on it even in two, just earlier, just earlier, instead of, like, no. Right now, you're a Palpatine. I'm like, okay, yeah, this is definitely fan fiction. <laughs> you know what's crazy is that, like, after watching Rise of Skywalker, I saw this one video saying that, is Rey a Palpatine? Fan theory, right? And it had come out two years before that film was even made. You're saying J.J. Abrams is like, I like that. I'm saying he saw that video and copied it into Rise of Skywalker. And you know what? I believe it is what? note for note each no for no, no for me. No. I'm like someone owes somebody some royalties. Abrams, Abrams. That video has millions of views now. I'm not no. sure how it had back then when it was first released because you know there's so many fanfare videos that like I don't even pay attention to because it's just fan fiction at that point. It's speculation mm-hmm. at that point. But down, mm-hmm. I was like, that's so crazy. I don't think anyone could do that. And then I'm like, he actually copy that shit the mad lad actually did it (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry long 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 tangent you're gonna have to edit but i'm i'm sorry no i'm sorry too i should this is my podcast i should be more control of my emotions when it comes to jj abrams because he's a hack (laughs) he's a hack speaking of hacks speaking of hacks so back to (laughs) back to kazuo kawike so he talks about in this special feature this interview from 2015 that this period of time this setting it's um 
when Japan has started to become started to have an imperial court. So they it gone from like a, a shogunite to the imperial system because they're trying to copy not copy but try to emulate more the powers that be in Europe and America and they had like their own emperor. It's when their isolationism was um receding a bit. Yeah. So and it also just defeated Russia in the war. Uh, I forgot oh, which yeah. war it was, but they defeated them, and they're, like, high off that energy. So they're becoming a strong country. But um, the women still didn't have the right to vote, and they were looked down upon. They, they're they still viewed as um, their only job was to bear and rear children. And he wanted to create a strong and beautiful woman in that world. And that's who Lady Snowblood is. She had, with a beautiful sword that turns cutting people down into an art and a symbol of beauty. That's what, that's in his own words. And he also acknowledged that, like, back then they had a caste system where, like, samurai were above farmers and above artisans and merchants. And so back then, if a samurai killed a townsperson, it wasn't even considered a crime because they're below them. And it's, like, crazy to even think about that. Like, oh, that's, oh, that's, that's some bullshit, you know? Yeah, not even, not, I don't want to say to the extent of, like, samurai, but, like, caste, caste system is still exists in the, in the East. Yeah, it's crazy. And some, I want to say something similar, but you do see some parallels with that here in this country, where, like, You know it's similar. You can say it's similar. Okay. <laughs> um, Castle Gay Wave, like, almost everything to the point, like, they have a fund called, I call it fuck-up fund. Where if they screw up, they have a fund to reach into to pursue the lawsuits. Just for the lawsuits of, like, when they screw up. And there was, like, one where, like, they... for In one year, they used half of that fund of, like, $3 billion. I'm like, wait, how much? How mm-hmm. much? Excuse mm-hmm. me? Just if they mess up. Oh, it's... Uh, mm-hmm. I don't want to talk about that. Um... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's another topic. Let's steer back. But he also says in this in his manga, he says sex scenes are boring because it's all the same thing, and the only sex scenes you see in the manga are when there's a need. So like it's when they being used before they get killed, you know, to get closer to the subject and then kill them. And he has been talked to about making a remake, but he likes this film the best, and he doesn't want a remake. So. That's just about the writer of the manga. As far as like the screenwriter, whose name is Norio Osada, I hope I said that name right, this was the first time he adapted a manga into a film. And he says it's easier to write an original screenplay because you start from zero. It's a lot harder when you try to adapt a, an existing piece of work because authors will get mad uh, how you're adapting their screen, their their subject into screenplay. Well, I mean, to be fair, a lot of people don't bring the authors on board for... yeah. Like, as an advisory role. And that blows my mind. They're the person that created the the piece of fiction that you're adapting. You don't <laughs> want their opinion? <laughs> yeah, that's something that's, um, you see a lot happening. And as I've grown older, I've also, like, been forgiving of some movies that didn't translate everything from the book. Because they're two very different mediums. You can't do both. In the book, you can get inside the main character's head. You can't do that necessarily in a movie because it might get a little boring if you keep hearing the, the main character's thoughts. Um, but also, the thing with this is that he didn't know that there's going to be a sequel, so he wrote he condensed all of the manga into 90 minutes for that first film. Mm-hmm. And when they when they said they're going to make a second one, he's like, "What? <laughs> uh, excuse me, there's going to be a sec. What are we going to do with the yeah. second one?" <laughs> yeah, no, of course, it's always like. That's why I said earlier, Lady, Lady Slowbud 2 doesn't exist. She died in the first one as a, as a neat little bow. 
Wrapped it up quite nicely. Dramatic irony. She died to her own Lady Snowblood in the snow. Do you have any final thoughts? Um, final thoughts. I was going to say I hope they never adapt this Western, but then it's like, nope, they did, and it was actually pretty good, so. <laughs> as far as, like, adaptations go, because the West loves adapting things from the East, I think Quentin Tarantino did a pretty good job. It was basically the same thing, but it was... I would say through a completely different lens. Um, Quentin Tarantino's is like pretty much a full-on revenge fantasy. And the and Lady Snowblood was a revenge story where like you see the actual like human, I guess, air quotes, elements of revenge. Yeah. Like the consequences of. I, I for, totally forgot about this, but when um that lady hung herself and then she sliced, and then Lady Snowblood like sliced her in half like a pinata. Mm-hmm. Curtains close. You remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I totally forgot about that. I just remembered that. Curtains closed. I remember, like, thinking, like, then, like, so is this a play? (laughs) I mean, in in, in some way it is, yeah. Yeah, I just remember seeing that. I I don't know, like, the stylistic choice behind that. And I wouldn't say I'm a fan of it, but I I guess I would say I appreciate it. Yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. I've never seen something like that before. Interesting choice, Cotton. Let's see how it plays out. I, I might do the same for one of my feature films. I'm not going to say which one. <laughs> You're not going to mm-hmm. expect it, but when you see it... <laughs> you don't expect like the Spanish Inquisition. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that concludes our conversation today. Thank you, Tabitha, so much for being on this show. I really appreciate you coming back and bearing with me and my tangents for another time. No, thank you so much for having me. I mean, I feel like I was just as guilty for the tangents. <laughs> <laughs> Also, thank you for recommending Crimson Peak uh, because it gave me another excuse to go see the movie. I, I, I like learning more about the production behind it and learning, like, there's more choices beyond stuff that you see on screen. I want to ask you real quick, were the movies a hit or a miss of you? I think we already know, but just to hear it one more time. I would say both of them were a hit for me. I really, really liked Crimson Peak, except for that one plot <laughs> point. But the rest of the movie was so good, and I love Guillermo del Toro that I can ignore question mark that part (laughs) um and i i liked lady snowblood because i don't really i don't have a frame of reference for other films that were made in in the samurai style for that time so by default that's the best one i've seen (laughs) and also i i really liked that it was the predecessor for kill bill one of my top 10 movies so i like finding out that was very exciting for me yeah i would say um crimson peak was a hit for me i think i kind of made that obvious I wish there were more movies made like it in today's time. I know there's some like 40 years ago, maybe a little bit more beyond that. But yeah, I, I really like this movie because like the set design was real. It wasn't like digitized in post, you know? It was actually real. And I would say Lady Snowblood is a miss for me, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do appreciate some moments in that film. And it's because I've seen other samurai films from that same era that I would say this one's a miss for me. I had, I want to say higher expectations. That, that, that were actually good. <laughs> that were actually good. <laughs> that were actually good. I've seen five Lone Wolf and Cub Samurai films, and mm-hmm. I really like those. And I've also seen The Sword of Doom, which I love that movie. I, I think about the movie pretty much often. I, and I saw that in August, you know, which is like mm. half, a, half a year ago. But yeah, that's kind of why it was a miss with me. So where can we find you on social media? You can find me on twitch.tv slash sailor tabby cat. 
um, as well as on Twitter and Instagram, also Sailor Tabby Cat. I am Sailor Tabby Cat pretty much everywhere that there is social media. Awesome. I like that name. I, I don't want to say convinced, but like I persuaded like a few of my friends, like two or three of my friends to follow you on Twitch based off your username Yay. alone. Just off my username alone? <laughs> yes, based off your username alone. Because like, they also like Sailor Moon and they also like cats. I got something for you. <laughs> I got a Hannah Montana, best of both worlds for them. <laughs> Okay, uh, that's all for today, folks. You've been listening to the Hitlist Podcast. My name is Jason, and until next time, cross off a new film from your list. Thank you for listening to the Hitlist Podcast. If you liked this episode, please consider giving us five stars and leaving a review. It really does help. You can also follow us on Facebook at the Hitlist Podcast and Instagram at the underscore Hitlist underscore podcast. 